Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code PODCAST for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. Hello, everybody. It's Lenny Murphy with another episode of the Green Book Podcast. Thank you for taking the time to share a little bit of your day with us. We appreciate it. And as usual, by us, it means that I have a guest. This is kind of the point of this whole thing, right? So <laughs> maybe one day I'll surprise you and I'll just come on and just talk and then our podcast ratings will plummet. But <laughs> in the meantime, today, my guest is Carrie Hecht. Founder and CEO of Echo MR. Carrie, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, let's see if you feel that way when we're done. That's always the best, <laughs> right? Of course. Yeah. No, it's great to have you on. And as usual, Carrie and I have known each other for a very long time. You'll pick up on that during our conversation. But this is a topic that I've wanted to get to for a while because one of the things that I've always loved about you is this collaborative passion that you have. I mean, all of our interactions over the years have always had this nature of you just jumping in and saying, yep, let's all work together and do some cool stuff. And you've done it. You've pulled that off over and over again. And I know that you've got some particular initiatives that you want to get into now. So that'll be through that lens. But actually, I'm putting the cart for the horse, Carrie. For those who don't know you, why don't you Tell everybody a little bit about you and a little bit about Echo, and then we'll, we'll pivot back to the, this cool collaborative stuff that you're focused on now. Yeah, of course. So I am one of the people that my story in the industry is a fairly common one, you know, where, where back in the day before there were market research degrees, people just ended up working in market research, you know, in, in one capacity or another. My journey started at Mark Opinion Research as a phone interviewer back in the early 90s. So I'm, I'm dating myself when I say that Snapple was a new brand at that time. And I have been so passionate about the industry and I've always felt very fortunate that I ended up here, you know, that I ended up in a place where I could be passionate about the people that I work with, about the work that we do, and really about the endless opportunities any individual that works in this industry has to try out new things, wear new hats. You know, and, and, and through that, over the course of 30 plus years now, there's probably few things that I haven't done in market research and have always felt very supported by the industry, by you guys at Green Book, by you, Lenny, as an individual, and, you know, really aim to create within our own organization and on an individual basis, creating the same kind of opportunities for other people within the company and hopefully more broadly than that. Yeah. And, you know, I share the same story, right, of falling in here and stealing my, my start uh, running a phone room. Yeah, so, <laughs> right. I, I remember we, the script. Yes. <laughs> we were doing CAPS surveys, which is a consumer assessment of health plan satisfaction. I still remember that. So basically, customer sat, telephone surveys. So now let's talk about Echo, though. She founded Echo in 2017, and you have grown tremendously from what I can tell. You found a really great opportunity and gap in the market. And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So Echo was founded kind of on, on the idea that there were some systemic gaps, 
especially when it came to digital research. So particularly at that point, it was asynchronous qualitative. And, you know, and even in the, the past five and a half years that Echo has been around, we've seen, you know, such a shift in the digital space, right? So we were set up initially from the get-go to support longitudinal research from a project management perspective, because I think that there's a lot of nuances in supporting those kinds of projects that are different from, you know, face-to-face research. And over the course of the past many years, we have been fortunate enough to partner with a lot of the tech companies that have positioned themselves to varying degrees as DIY, when really there is more of like a do it together component to it. So we built a range of services around supporting that kind of work. And it really resonated with our client base, right? And initially, we have, and you know, this is something that I'm very passionate about, and I'm I'm sure that we'll talk quite a bit about this over this call, is participant quality. I was looking at what our options were And we're thinking about how technology theoretically had made recruiting for qualitative and for, you know, surveys easier because we had databases where people were proactively registering those things. We had screeners that were, that could be automated. So you're not simply picking up the phone and dialing, you know, like what we used to do with random digit dialing isn't a thing anymore. But then, you know, the other side of that coin is that we've ended up with a scenario where the quality, if not authenticity, of the individuals that are participating in the research is questionable. So, you know, back when social media was really on its, I guess, probably second wave of rising, I just kept thinking, you know, every single one of us is sitting on the biggest database in the world, right? And there are ways to interact with those people that validate the behaviors that we're looking for, which is what we would typically find out through any sort of screening. So, you know, we spent the first couple years bumbling through trying to figure out how to recruit people online. And, you know, over the course of the years have been able to evolve, you know, our services into something that I think is valid, meaningful, and, you know, the built-in authenticity of the participants as the goal. Uh, So you became really busy probably about midway through 2020, right? As the explosion of digital qual. Yeah. I mean, so we are really fortunate in that we grew rapidly from day one. So day one, it was two of us. We had nine projects literally on day one. And now we have, you know, a global team that is, you know, getting closer to a hundred people across all of the continents. And, you know, we have some interesting ideas about how to expand that moving forward in a way that also brings this data quality issue, hopefully forward as well. But, you know, we've been experiencing rapid growth. Again, fortunately, I'm knocking on wood, which is my head for those that can't see this. You know, we will continue growing like we have been. Um, It's been wild um, and a lot of driving with the hood open, but we've learned a lot. And I think that we've built something meaningful to the people that work within the company and hopefully meaningful to other people in the industry to see what's possible. Uh, Which at the end of the day, that's really the goal, isn't it? Right. As an entrepreneur is to feel good about what we're doing. The money and everything's nice, right? The yes, growth, those yeah. are, yeah, those are aspects of kind of affirmation that we're doing good things, but it is that feel good that we've found that area of application, that intersection between passion and ability. Yes. That creates meaningful, gosh, I can't think of the right word. It's just meaningful. We'll just leave it yeah. at that. <laughs> in my head, I said meaningful opportunities, right? And I think that it can be meaningful opportunities in so many different directions, right? It can be meaningful opportunities for the people that 
you start to work with who don't have any background in it. And, you know, and we had talked previously about developing a training program that involves college coursework that we send them through, through Coursera, which doesn't really cost us any money, right? And we're able to cultivate the knowledge base that we want. And you combine that with the experience they're gaining and it fast forwards them through, you know, the decades it took the rest of us to get the knowledge base that we desired them. We take a lot of cues from other companies outside of the space when it comes to how to innovate about new products or new lines of business. And, you know, it's funny because when I started and people were, would ask, what's the plan? And there wasn't one, right? And now, you know, five and a half years in, I have this, you know, notion about, you know, five, 10 years from now having a cooperative network of, you know, companies that are spun off of ideas by other people on the team that they're given an equity stake in those companies for coming up with the ideas. And then, you know, Echo or, or one of the other companies that we already have, and we're already up to three, are funding. It's become this expansion of reimagining how we help our employees, what kind of benefits they get, how do we help them create actual wealth, how do we create culture of innovation and really put those ideas forward. And so, I mean, I've never been more excited about what is coming down the pike. You know, we've got some great things in the hopper, but even the ideas that are going to come that I don't know about yet. I mean, so I, I feel really excited about, that. you know, if you're looking to change the world, which I know is sort of a lofty goal, there's no better place to start than yourself and with the people that are around you. Yeah, I love that. And I don't know if we've ever, you probably know this, but we took a very similar model within Green Book. Right. So the Green Book family of companies of, you know, Savio and Berglip and Gentoo Advisors were exactly that same motivation. Here's an idea. It didn't fit particularly well within Green Book's core mission, but helped create the funding mechanism to spin those off and give them an opportunity to thrive and succeed with its own their own teams that are yeah. building off of that. Yeah. yeah no, that's great. So it's just an exciting thing. I mean, you know, and, and we're also fortunate that we've got a lot of young people on our team. And I think that, you know, as we look to create new ideas and have this culture of innovation, you know, that's the future, right? So if I look at my job as making sure that this company is still viable and relevant in 30 years, you know, I should be looking to the people who are going to be in charge in 30 years, not me. So it's, it, you know, again, it's exciting and we all get jazzed about new ideas. So it's working. <laughs> yeah, obviously it is. That's fantastic. So what is the connective tissue between that mindset, that philosophy and passion around translating that to creating new opportunities and experiences for respondents? Yeah. So I have always been very passionate about the participant experience. And I've been a project manager at a focus group facility. I've been a director at a focus group facility. I've been a researcher in quant. So I've seen some of the wacky things that come across your desk that, you know, show that there is definitely some systemic fraud from the side of the research participants. And, you know, I think I've said this before, and this is kind of a strong statement, but I will stand behind it. You know, we created this model, right? So after random digit dialing, and you know, here comes the internet, we created a scenario where we're asking people to join databases on the promise of making money, but then we get mad or we don't want to use them if that is what they are expecting from us, right? And over the years, we've partnered a couple of times on doing research on research where we've actually talked to people in the qualitative space about lie on screeners, why they take part in many different research projects. And their answers are, I think, 
something that we should be really building upon. And so let's just use qualitative research as the primary example of this, which is, well, you give us a screener and your screener is designed to trick me. So why would I not behave the same way? And the first time I heard a respondent say that, it felt like a gut punch and you're just like, oh my God, you're right. So trying to build a philosophy around that, you know, we really try to talk to our clients about just because a person participates in lots of research, does that matter, right? You know, I have a cat and I brush my teeth and I drive a Toyota. I probably have things to say about all of those things. And so from my perspective, I think that as we are building out our databases of participants, we need to keep in mind that if you're looking for quick, cheap sources of people that also cannot align with rock stars that have never, ever participated in research, right? So it's almost like we're creating this, we have created this paradox where the expectation and the reality just do not line up, right? So one of the things that we're doing now, so we, we have a, our participant facing brand is, is hivemind.zone. And we've started using the database as a gig economy. So the people that enter the database have multiple different ways that they can make money. And it can be networking through to get other people to sign up for the community. It can be networking to fill projects. It could be intercepts for hyper-localized qualitative recruiting or for surveys. You know, and if you think about it, if you're talking about tracking where you need sample to be the same, you know, you can match demographic zip codes and put things out that way. You know, and then we've got other things too, like translating, you know, digital shop alongs, you know, which used to be called mystery shopping, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these different kinds of things that we can give them different ways that they can make money outside of, you know, simply the way that we've been doing it for the past, you know, 25 years since the internet's been around. And I think that that puts control back in their hands. It makes it a more interesting experience. It also aligns with how the world has changed, right? So we're in a, a swipe right, swipe left environment. We are in an environment where we are competing with other gig economy applications from TaskRabbit to Upwork to you know DoorDash and Uber Eats. So the way that people think about how their time should be commoditized is different. People interact with brands differently if you think about influencer culture. And so I think that we need to match them where they are, not the other way around, which you know is, is something that I think has always been sort of challenging in our industry is that we're slow to recognize that people are changing. So our goal with HiveMind is to take all of that information that we know is working and have it work for us in the research industry in a similar way. And, you know, I think that, you know, the other piece of that that is, is really important is creating this feedback loop, not just from the perspective of research agencies or consumer insights department at corporate brands commenting on the quality of the participant, but there's the other side to that coin, right? Which is what kind of experiences are we giving them? You know, I mean, if you think about the GRIT report and how long have we been banging on about mobile optimized surveys? And, you know, we still see things that come across that's a 45 minute long survey that they want people to take on the phone and they want to pay $2 for it. We're not in that world anymore. It doesn't make sense. You're going to get garbage. So my thinking about it is that if we could have real data that is collected across the industry 
that we are sharing about the kind of research that is successful, that people are enjoying doing, that we would have a much better pool of people to tap into for getting these consumer insights, right? So like, if you think about, again, sort of online dating as an example of this, someone may give you 15 minutes of their time to meet you, but if their experience is terrible, they're not going to give you 15 more minutes of their time. So how can we have an expectation that the good participants, the real participants are going to come back if what we're giving them to do is unreasonable, not thoughtful, isn't reflective of their actual life, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So my hope is that we can build a large enough body of data that this is something that we can bring forth to the people that are designing the research to help manage what their expectations should be so that we ultimately get better results. Yeah, so much there. And sometimes I wish that our listeners could see the video when we're talking because, you know, my head was just nodding, kind of my neck hurts now from, <laughs> you know, from, from nodding so much. And you know that we've talked offline, very, very similar perspective on this and, and you know, launched a company a few years ago to Veriglyph uh, to try and, and get to the same, the same objective, although uh, possibly in a different way. But that's really neither here nor there. The, the point is that as an industry, we have to start thinking about ecosystems from yes. an engagement perspective, right? The you know, respondents have so many, not respondents, people, people just have so many other opportunities to leverage their time, their experience, and their data, right? And those are intrinsic assets that we have as humans that we should be able to leverage and that reward process, it could be for fun, it could be for social, it could be for monetization. That's up to the individual in terms of what's driving them overall in their priority standpoint. But our job should be to give them an outlet to do those things. And to your point, what, what you've done with Mind, it really is, it's a side hustle, right? And right. that's okay. Yeah. So, yeah. and what occurred to me while you're talking, since we're, we went, went back to the old days of RDD, you know, as an industry, our roots in the social sciences, that's where that came from, right? And not dismissing that that is still the gold standard, et cetera, et cetera, may not be possible anymore, yeah. but, but certainly get it from a social sciences and, and statistics standpoint. Yes, of course. But commercial research is not necessarily aligned to that anymore, right? right. Yeah. Political polling, that's one thing. Right. Anything like that, the, the work that the CDC does, you know, all of those things. Yes, that's important that we have that randomization opportunity to make sure that we're representative. But we have so many other tools now for commercial research to ensure that we're balancing out to be representative of a specific population, that it's almost an afterthought now. So therefore, the engagement component must be paramount. We must... Yeah. Think yeah. about things in a different way. Yes, go ahead. I totally yes. agree. I mean, and so like the model that we're deploying with HiveMind is that obviously the people that are participating in the research will be incentivized, but then the people that find them that ultimately are essentially advocates, not just for HiveMind as a brand, but advocates for the experience itself are incentivized for finding the right person and the successful completion of the project, Right. And so, you know, if you think about the motivators for trying to game the system, it's often because 
you know, they're wasting a lot of time, right? So the people that we're asking to join us in these conversations, they waste time on redundant demographic questions in hoppers where they're getting directed from one study to another study to another screener, I should say, screener, 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 screener. You know, again, they're getting taken through a 25 page three algorithm qualitative screener. And if what we really want is to be engaging with actual customers, real people, articulate people, the experience that we give them should at least be neutral slash pleasant, not negative. You know, I mean, even if you think about Yelp, which is, you know, not what it was several years ago, but when people provide feedback naturally, it is because they've either had a really positive experience or a really negative experience, right? So we know that people are willing to share that. And if we express to them that what they are going to do is learn something, they're going to be part of a process that helps move brands forward, helps make their lives better. And that's what we're selling for them. That's the value proposition. You know, things like incentives go down, all of those different things happen. And, you know, I think that we have just gotten, I was going to say lazy, but that's not the right word. I think that we've just gotten complacent in the idea that participants are liars or cheaters or whatever, but then we expect them to be rock stars when they're actually participating in the research. But, you know, I mean, this is something that I've said for a very long time is we sort of don't treat them well right up until we expect them to be amazing. And then we go right back to not treating them well, you know, and it's a really sort of odd, odd paradigm. So, I mean, I think that, you know, if we collectively as an industry are able to provide not just you know, what my anecdotal feelings are on this, but actual data behind it, you know, behind drop-off rates, behind, like, I could go out there and probably by the end of the day, find you someone to talk about any topic you wanted to, you know, ranging from a CEO to a dentist to a cat lady. I could find that person to give you 15, 20 minutes of their time without paying them, probably, right? But then what happens once I hand that person over I don't have control over that anymore. And then we expect, you know, I don't know what we really expect if we aren't going to give them something that is valuable from an information standpoint, from an educational standpoint, or money. There has to be a bigger value prop for them if we are expecting real people. You know, you mentioned social media platforms, and I've often thought that we were all terrified, right, when Facebook and Twitter and the big platforms emerge, oh my God, if they, you know, go after the research space, you know, we're screwed, which is still a true statement. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But they made a critical mistake. In my opinion, they made the users, the product. And we did the same thing with the advent of programmatic and panels. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's simply, it's just the nature of the business. And it's just like uh, programmatic advertising. So it's efficient, technology drives that efficiency, it's about speed and volume, but it always goes to the lowest common denominator. It just does the way it works. So I think that the opportunity now for us as an industry is to think about the lessons of successful social media platforms, which is one fundamentally of engagement and addressing those needs that humans have for communication, for fun, for monetization, you know, all those things we already talked about. But doing that in a way where we are in partnership with consumers. So agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. We're their agents. We're there to help them, not take from them. Yes. We're there to yeah. empower them. 
Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I think, you know, Facebook is one example of, you know, social media, of course. But I think that, you know, what we had aimed to do because of sort of the transition of, I would say, the broader public opinion on Facebook, you know, we wanted to move away from that, right? So we started engaging. So part of what we're building with HiveMind, right, is this, you know, if you think about the people that are entering into that database and the opportunities that they're given, if they're able to go and post on their next door account, again, for hyper-localized recruiting, and then they become advocates, not just for HiveMind, but of the process and the experiences they've had before, that's going to go a lot farther in getting people to engage because you've got an endorsement from, you know, a person that you appreciate. You know, the other side of that, or the other piece of that, I think, you know, is if you look at platforms like Reddit, right, there are subreddits for every possible topic you could have about anything from behavior to product. And when we engage with people who will then go out onto reddits to subreddits to look for people who are using, you know, a specific fitness app or things like that. So we know that these people are already talking about the thing that we need them to talk about. And so it becomes a much different game. You know, so like when we do even do feasibility checks, if we can find lots of groups where people are talking about it online, that drives how we determine feasibility. Or we see if we've got you know, people who are willing to network for us in different areas, that's how we drive feasibility. And have they networked for us before? And how did that go? You know, so we're building these profiles, much like you would see on TaskRabbit or Upwork, where people have, you know, five-star ratings and they've completed, you know, 50 projects for us, right? And I really think that, uh, you know, I've kind of gotten past the beating the dead horse on participant quality and, and panel quality and I think this is partially a byproduct of COVID, right? Where you, we weren't in, you know, our own echo chamber as much as we historically are. So we could sit down and think about, okay, right. Well, what's a different, better way to do this, right? Like, how do I develop a global network of people who will help do all of these different things that we actually need done within any individual project and do it in a way that automates the vetting automates the verification process. You know, we had talked about blockchain a lot, right? Like verifying these people and all of the the data that they've created um, being stored in a safe way, right? So we don't need to keep revetting these people. We already know they've got scores. But then, you know, the other side, like I said, is they're rating us, right? So tell me what we're doing right. Tell me what we're doing wrong. Yeah, I'm just grinning, right? Is uh, <laughs> you're talking, but wheels are turning in my head, Carrie. We will have another conversation offline about this. I think we flirted in the past with some yeah. collaboration and you've just reminded me of like, no, we need to quit flirting. Let's just talk. Right. And, and yeah, you know, I want to get um, Jay Ty involved in the conversation as well, because he's our blockchain geek in the group and he's also our metaverse geek. Right. So he already created an environment for Echo and then an additional one for HiveMind in the metaverse. And is, you know, starting to play with that. And, you know, I mean, and it's so exciting. And again, it's like, you know, you think about Echo, our company is so fortunate to have people that are proactive in that, you know, that are just, they're over there already playing with it. He sends probably one or two articles a week about what brands are doing in it. And it's just really exciting, you know, so. So I'll I'll put this lens for the conversation. When, When we started Veriglyph, we were going after panels, not going after panels. We wanted to disrupt that ecosystem, right? Because of the volume. Of course, you look at the TAM, right? Of course, that's a big ass target. But I think what is 
and I'm convinced of this now, we were wrong. It's qual. Qual is where there was not an embedded system. There were procedures, but there wasn't a system in place. And it was still relatively small proportionally. 2020 changed that, right? The technology was there to allow for scalability and qualitative research. It became vitally important. So the opportunity for disruption, as you're experiencing right now, is through the lens of qualitative research in all of its dimensions, right? I, yeah, I, right. I certainly don't just mean groups, right? I bucket yeah, everything you've, you've talked about in there. And that becomes that self-perpetuating machine. The more that we can enable scale and quality and impact within qualitative research and work on price and speed, the more that's going to grow overall. And I am utterly convinced at this point that even though our fears of big data that controls the who, what, when, where, and how from a data standpoint have not emerged yet, it will. It will. Yeah. Yeah. But not why. Not the why. And the future of the industry, I believe, is that there will be effectively two sides. There will be a data-driven component that is, you know, surveys and and passive data and you know, those things that more and more look like part of kind of the analytics world. Yes. Yeah. And then qualitative research, I use the term loosely again, that combines, you know, behavioral science and et cetera, et cetera, but is based fundamentally on engaging with people in a very deep way about why. And that's where the growth is going to continue to come from, I believe. Yeah, I think that you're right. Building on that, I think that we're seeing more and more hybrid methodologies, right? So that when you are engaging with a person and you are looking for that deep level of information and and almost like an anthropology experiment, right? You're asking to let people into your life and things like that, that we do have the technology to do that now in a way that doesn't necessarily require there is also an opportunity for passivity in data collection in that way, right? So one of the things that we think about a lot, I mean, and qualitative has taken, I mean, obviously many different iterations over the course of the years. And, you know, I think even prior to, you know, COVID happening, there was a need for us to be thinking about it differently. I mean, well, look, it was coming for us anyway, right? It was coming, you know, with tech companies and online communities and, you know, and and I could wax philosophical about long-term communities all day long, but it's, you know, all of this stuff was happening anyway. I think we were just slow to pick it up. So what we really worked on, I mean, I worked for Murray Hill Center back in the day for Sue Weiner in New York and, you know, the amount of wild people that would show up there. And then the same thing, you know, in Los Angeles where you've got these out-of-work actors and so when we started Echo, we had a couple of really awful experiences where, you know, you're recruiting affluent young women to participate in, you know, high-end athleisure wear focus groups. And, you know, they, of course, show up and we haven't been able to lay eyeballs on them and they are not who they say they are. And, you know, all that's playing out in front of the client. And, you know, everyone in our industry has at least 150 to 5 million stories like this, right? And so we started thinking about, and I think this is really, you know, foundational to our company and all of the different companies now that we're sort of are becoming offshoots is what problem are we aiming to solve, right? So we started with, okay, so we're not going to recruit from 
databases, we're going to recruit from social media. Okay, well now social media, all what we would consider the pros are following us on social media. So now that's the same problem. And so, okay, we need to lay eyeballs on them. Okay, so what we would do is gather video articulation questions that were outside of the screener. And, you know, some of our older project managers were like, well, they're never going to do that. And I'm like, well, you know, then they won't get picked for the study. And it's like, you know, so what we found is that if we explain to people why we're asking the questions that we're asking and why we're gathering the information that we need, that they're a lot more inclined to provide you that information, right? And so then in an effort to make the experience more streamlined and more pleasant, you know, okay, great. So let's vet them once. And then we can give the option to the client of whether you want us to revet them. Like they've already participated in a study. So if you want us to revet them, there's, you know, a price for the acquisition of that person. And that acquisition could be from the database, which would be the cheapest. It could be through social media advertising or whatever, right? So we recommend a way of sourcing the person. And then we make recommendations on how we would vet them. So if it's going to be for some, you know, face-to-face call or an ethnography, let's get them on the phone. Let's make sure they understand. We'll record all of that. You know, and, and we've even gone as far as taking our screeners and flipping them into open-ended questions at the rescreening level. Because again, there's no opportunity to cheat if you don't know that one of the answers is going to be part of a coded list. And so these things seem really obvious to me. And I think for the life of me, I can't figure out why we don't do things that way, especially now that, you know, one could argue that if you have to process, you know, 500 people's open-ended questions for a screener, that that would be time consuming. But is it really any more time consuming than pooling data, sorting data, filtering the data, you know, especially if you plug AI onto the top of it. So I think it's just trying to look at things in the way that like what makes sense for what we're doing. Like if I'm recruiting for a digital journal where we're asking people to track their food habits, sleep habits, whatever, why not as part of the recruiting strategy, ask them if they're already doing that. Right. And, you know, so that we know that they're going to be able to successfully complete this project because it's not outside of what they do on a daily basis anyway. Right. If I could figure out, you know, whether or not you consider your cat a member of the family, and this is an example I use all the time, by asking you five open-ended questions, not 15, you know, pages worth of attribute batteries, you know, that, that, you know, if you get a six on one, you're in, if you get a seven, you're out, you know? So I think that if we could all just sort of take a step back and say, you know, what's the goal, right? The goal is to, for this person to be able to speak eloquently on the topic, (laughs) then let's figure out if they can, you know, (laughs) like, yeah, and technology exists now to make all of that easier, right? Yeah, I mean, text automate, analytics, yeah. right? There's so many cool things that are out there now that are even light years better than a year ago, right? Yeah, so you can build in the video articulation question, and on the back end of your survey software, you've got sentiment analysis, right? So you don't even have to process it. So now it doesn't even have to be multiple steps, right? So you know, we really do aim to try to leverage, you know, the different technology pieces out there, and and also really work with the tech companies that we support in helping to figure out sort of different ways to productize what they're doing, you know, because it benefits us because we get the services from it, right? So I guess we are going to be a tech company when the app for HiveMind launches, which is coming really soon. But, you know, it's working with these companies and sort of helping reframe the items that are on the menu in a way that makes sense for how people actually go through the world. Yeah, I think that's all just 
brilliant. And you and I definitely need to have more of a conversation offline, but we won't bore our listeners with that. But stay tuned, guys. Yes. (laughs) When we started this conversation, I said that, you know, it was your willingness to collaborate and your passion that has always impressed me for, gosh, what, 10 years or so that we've known each other. And you've just demonstrated that to, once again, and to our listeners. And from an entrepreneurial perspective, let's recognize that it's important. You know, so often we get caught up in the kind of industrialization of the research process for scale and technology, and all that's important too, right? I mean, we have shareholders and investors and and other key stakeholders that, you know, believe in us and we want to do things that make their lives good, right? But that passion, without that, none of it ever comes together, right? So anyway, just love it. Love that passion, Carrie. Yeah, well, I mean, look, you were actually, and I've, I've told you this before, but I think it's good for the listeners to hear, you know, a person that w- when I took the job of getting Dub, which is now further established in the US, and I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, like literally none. Never had a sales role, never had a business development role, didn't know anything about it. I pinged you and I was like, hey, Lenny, can you help me, you know, figure out how, I think it was probably even our first conversation, like, how do you talk to people about stuff when they don't know who you are? You know, and you gave me just incredibly good advice. And so, you know, and it opened the door for, you know, all of these things that we've done over the years, like the research on research, we're, I'm still pulling from those experiences to create what it is that we're doing next, still pulling from those experiences to try to educate our clients, you know, and in our industry, I know some people do feel competitive about things, but you know, we by nature, I think, are collaborative people, right? It's like our whole industry is based on understanding and, you know, how people act and why they act that way. And we've, you know, how many people do you have in your life that sometimes they're your supplier, sometimes they're your client? And I mean, that's that's just the nature of what we do. And so I think that everything that we can come together on to move initiatives like participant experience benefit all of us, right? Like, I mean, we don't just want our companies to be here in 30 years. We want our industry to be relevant and, and on the cutting edge. So it, it benefits all of us. And I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not been challenging to find people, you know, to partner with over the years on these broader things. I mean, you think about Andrew Cannon and Debbie Schlesinger and, you know, J.R. Venza and, and Lisa Welding Brown. I mean, they're, all of these people are busy people who will always give you some of their time and their resources to help all of us. And I think that makes us all really lucky, you know, to be where we are and in this industry. I don't have enough good things to say about it. Agreed. At the end of the day, we may have stumbled into this, but it was the happiest, well, the happiest accident was meeting my wife. The second happiest accident was, uh, (laughs) was stumbling into this industry. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. And it's always great to talk to you. No, you as well. So. I know that you're busy, obviously. <laughs> you got a hell of a lot going on. Is there anything that you wanted to bring up that we didn't touch on? Yeah, I think the only thing that I wanted to bring up was, and, and we had talked about this going back and forth on email a little bit, and I've got some people that are interested in participating in this, but it is that standardization of questions that we ask participants once they complete a project with us. And I've got, you know, several people that are on board with this, but I would love to put out, you know, a call to other companies that are interested in standardizing the questions that we ask once people are done completing a project and sharing that data 
with each other in a way that allows us to not just categorize what kind of research people are participating in, how long surveys are, what devices they're doing, that we collectively can create this body of data and then pull together a best practices, right? You know, the Insights Association has been doing a great job of creating the toolkit for data integrity. And I think that there could be another toolkit that is adjacent to that, that data collection companies could put together by standardizing the questions and sharing the results. And so that's my one big plug is like, if you're interested, you know where to find me. And I'm going to reach out to the people who have already expressed interest and start getting that ball moving forward. But I think it could be really, really powerful in how we set up the next, you know, five to 10 years and really moving the needle, not just on data quality and data integrity, but participant experience, because those things are obviously intrinsically linked. Yeah, no, I think that's a great idea. I mean, hell, every other industry has an internal benchmarking component across organizations. And so why shouldn't we? Yeah, we should. Let's do it. All right. Well, so you mentioned people know where to find you, but tell them where to find you. Okay. So you can reach me at our website is www.echo-mr.com. We are also hivemind.zone and very soon we will have spaces by Echo. We're in the process of building out our first residential observational research facility in Austin, which is very exciting. And then, of course, my email is k-e-r-r-y at echo-mr.com. There you go. All right. Carrie, always a pleasure. Thanks, Lenny. I appreciate this opportunity greatly and always love our conversations. Well, thank you. So good. That was a bad at the beginning, whether you would still, you know, be looking forward to it. I'm glad that we carried that, that through. So I didn't wear out my welcome. No, no, you couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean that genuinely. Yeah. He's like, is that a challenge? (laughs) (laughs) Challenge accepted. (laughs) Right. Yeah, we'll talk more later and we'll uh, we'll see. There's a benchmark. There's another measure we should have. That's the, right. The, that's le- right. The, the, the Lenny wearing out his welcome how, measure. How long does it take any one of us to wear out our welcome? <laughs> like, <laughs> all right. Oh, goodness. Awesome, uh, Lenny. All right. Thank you, Carrie. And thank you to our listeners. We really, really appreciate it. A big shout out to Natalie, our producer, to James, our editor, to our sponsors. And and one more time to you, our listeners, and Carrie. Thank you. Everybody be well. Take care. Thanks. Join Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.